0: The following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, hopefully you haven't, you're not tired of looking at me up here <clears throat> as we now turn to God's word for the morning message. And we'll be turning again today to Genesis chapter one. If you've been here with us, you'll know that we've been looking there for a while and uh I'm going to read again, Uh, actually I'm going to read a fairly lengthy section today from Genesis 1 verse 26 all the way down to chapter 2 verse 15. So follow with me as I read God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every good every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first one is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hydekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. Let's pray together. And now, our Father, as we come to your holy word, we ask that you would draw near to us and teach us, give us ears to hear, hearts to love, and wills to obey your word. We pray that Christ would be exalted, that we would be sanctified by your truth. And we pray, Father, that all that's said will be to your honor and to your praise. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So we are returning today to a series of messages that, uh, if you're a guest with us, it's a series of messages that we've been in now for a number of weeks entitled that I've entitled Recovering God's Design for Humanity in a World Gone Mad. And so we've taken a break from our ongoing expositional studies through the Gospel of Luke to focus on this topic uh, for a few weeks, probably a couple more messages, uh, at least after today. Now, we began by focusing on the account God's Word gives us of man's creation. And we've learned about the uniqueness of man as God's highest and special creation, superior to the rest of God's creatures, the identity of man as created in the image of God, the constitution of man as a body-soul entity. And then I gave three messages focusing on the sexual distinction of man or of mankind. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But then last week, still under our theme of God's design for humanity, we moved uh, from a consideration of man himself, the male and the female, to take up some of the foundational purposes, relationships, and activities for which God has created us. Of course, ultimately, God has made us for his glory, to show forth his praises as his royal image bearers, as we've learned, and to enjoy intimate and delightful communion with him, as it's stated in the answer to the first question of the shorter catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But what exactly are the structures, the relationships, and functions within which we are to do this and to live in this world. Well, this has brought us to what have commonly been called the creation ordinances. Creation ordinances. And what are creation ordinances? Well, we learned last week that this is language that's used to describe those directives that God gave to mankind at the very beginning. And these, can be, these have sometimes been summarized under four headings. There's the procreation command or uh, the procreation ordinance. Procreation speaking of sexual reproduction. You'll note at the beginning of Genesis 1.28, God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. This was the, our focus last week on the procreation ordinances. Then there's the ordinance of labor. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Also, Genesis 2.15, then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And this ordinance of labor will be our focus today. And then there's the Sabbath ordinance, Genesis 2.3, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That is, he set it apart as special and holy because that in it he rested from all his work which he had done. And then there's the ordinance of marriage, Genesis 224 Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And all of that was in addition to the unique probationary test prohibition given to Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree in the midst of the garden. So we have the ordinances of procreation, work, the weekly Sabbath, and marriage. And all of this was before... There was ever any Abrahamic or Mosaic covenant. That is, before there was any nation of Israel. The creation ordinances are given to man as man. To man as created in the image of God. And therefore, they apply to all men. And as we saw last time, whatever was ordained at creation continues to this present time. That which is creational is perpetual. We demonstrated that from references to this in the New Testament. Even though sin has entered in after the fall, those ordinances established at creation continue in force, though they have indeed, of course, been affected at certain points by the fall, as we've seen and will continue to see. But they continue as an expression of God's will for us today. So then our focus today is on the creation ordinance of labor or work. It's commonly held, even among non-believing historians, that one of the important effects of the Protestant Reformation that began in the days of Luther and Calvin was the emergence of what has since been called the Protestant work ethic. Have you ever heard that language? Someone speak of the Protestant work ethic. It's also been called the Puritan work ethic. And now this terminology is sometimes clouded today with misconceptions about what our uh, Reformed fathers actually taught. However, it's true that the Reformation era and the Puritan era which followed it resulted in a great change in people's attitudes toward work in those areas where the Reformation took root and was embraced. You see, for many centuries up until that time, it was customary in the Roman Catholic Church and culture to divide types of work into two categories, those of sacred work and secular work. Sacred work was the work of the clergy, those who engaged in full-time religious vocation of some kind, the priests and and the monks and the nuns in their monasteries and so on. All other work was viewed as not sinful, wasn't viewed as sinful or wrong, but inferior. And in a sense, less holy. And this perspective was very prominent during the Middle Ages And even as far back as the fourth century, we see this attitude beginning to be promoted. Eusebius, one of the leaders of the church at that time, wrote this. He said, two ways of life were given by the law of Christ to his church. The one is above nature and beyond common human living. Wholly and permanently separate from the common customary life of mankind, it devotes itself to the service of God alone. Such, then, is the perfect form of the Christian life. And the other, more humble, more human, permits men to have minds to farming for trade and the other, more secular interests, as well as for religion. And a kind of secondary grade of piety is attributed to them. Now, it was this strict, sacred-secular dichotomy and this, uh, in effect, disparaging of common labor that was strongly rejected by the Reformers. Luther attacked the notion that the clergymen, the monks and the nuns in their monasteries were engaged in holier work than the milkmaid milking her cow or the housewife or the farmer or the shopkeeper. He taught that any type of legitimate work, It's sacred work for the Christian. Calvin taught the same, and the Puritans who followed did as well. William Tyndale said this. He said that if we look externally, there is difference betwixt washing of dishes and preaching the word of God. But as touching to please God, none at all. The early Puritan William Perkins, one of the most influential of the Puritan pastor theologians, wrote, the action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as the action of a judge in giving sentence or a magistrate in ruling or a minister in preaching. So the Reformation resulted in this rejection of the Roman Catholic, this Roman Catholic dichotomy between sacred and secular work, and it taught that any type of work, as long as it is lawful work, is sacred for the Christian. And with that came the emphasis that every Christian is to view his work as a calling from God and is to engage in his work as service to God. He is to labor as to the Lord, recognizing that in his work he is serving the Lord Christ. And so this is what produced the Protestant or Puritan work ethic which by the way was so foundational to the early success of of our great nation but now where did the reformers and the puritans come up with these ideas well i remind you that the reformation was essentially a rediscovery of the bible a casting off of man-made religious tradition and a reassertion of the bible alone as the sole and primary authority for faith and practice. Well, as the reformers went to the Bible, they saw that the, this Roman Catholic teaching was a denial of Scripture. They saw that the Bible teaches that man is to work. You know, to be idle. They saw they, they actually attacked the monasteries as being places of idleness where men just sit around and mumble prayers all day and read Bible verses and flog themselves and, and uh, fast and pray all day and and Luther, he really attacked it. He, he had been a monk. You know, as it was an easy job, a lazy job to sit around and do that all day and to be fed and taken care of. And so uh, these men argued that this is, this is not biblical, that, that the Bible teaches that man is to work and that all forms of lawful work have dignity before God and are to be done by the Christian in devotion to God, it was even to servants, indentured servants. Probably were indentured servants, the lowest, uh, as I as I remember, the lowest form really of manual labor. We might even call them slaves in one sense. It was to them that Paul wrote in Colossians two, three, uh, three, twenty-three, and following. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Even in the lowest form of manual labor, perhaps we could call it, Paul is telling them, you're to do it heartily. You're to do it unto the Lord. You're to know that in doing so, you are actually serving the Lord Christ. And that's to be the spirit with which you work. And they also saw that this biblical view of work finds its roots way back in the beginning in the first chapter of Genesis. And this brings us today to the creation ordinance that we come to consider this morning, the ordinance of labor. And first, I want us to see that productive labor is one of the purposes for which man was originally created. And then secondly, I hope to consider then the effects of the fall on the original labor mandate. And i i benefited from a number of people in studying this subject, especially I remember a series of sermons on the subject of work that I heard by Al Martin many, many years ago, probably 20 years ago, that I've drawn a lot of things from and adopted and adapted in this message. And, And also John Murray's little book, Principles of Conduct, a very excellent book on Christian ethics, where he addresses in some detail this matter of labor, the creation ordinance of labor. So notice with me as we begin to look at this, first of all, that productive labor is one of the purposes for which man was originally created. In the original creation, even before sin entered into the world, Adam was given work to do. First of all, he was given the general responsibility of subduing the earth. Verse 28, chapter 1, then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam and Eve were given this command, not only to fill the earth, the procreation mandate, but to subdue the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that the earth was in, in some way uh, a reluctant earth after the fall and the curse there's a sense, real sense in which it is, but the command here does imply that this involved work. God is setting before Adam the responsibility to master and to harness the resources of the world in which God has placed him. We might include in that the discovery of the laws by which God cre- ordered his universe and the utilization of the world and its resources for the glory of God and the good of man. Listen to this quote from John Murray. They were told to subdue the earth, and as they would discover more and more of the earth that God had made, it would mean geographical expansion, as they were fruitful and multiplied and replenished the entire earth. Even, the, even in the genial conditions which would have ob- obtained in an uncursed earth, it is not difficult to imagine the labor entailed in geographical expansion. The necessity for making adequate provision for sustenance and comfort in the process of expansion. They would have to devise ways to create carts to carry their goods to another place. Devise ways to harvest their crops and to use the beasts that are more suited by their constitution in the original creation to bear that particular burden but more significant in respect of labor is the mandate to subdue the earth. This means nothing if it does not mean the harnessing and utilizing of the earth's resources and forces. We are not to suppose that the earth is represented as offering resistance to man's dominion, but the subduing of the earth must imply the expenditure of thought and skill and energy in bringing the earth and its resources under such control that they would be channeled to the promotion of certain ends that they were suited and designed to fulfill, but which would not be fulfilled apart from the exercise of man's design and labor. So you see, this whole matter of filling the earth and subduing it would involve both mental and physical labor for mankind. And this is before sin entered into the world after the fall. Right from the hand of their creator, Adam and Eve understood that labor was both their duty and their privilege, and that labor was the God-ordained means by which they were to bring glory to God as his image bearers and bring good to themselves. So you see, Adam and Eve in their sinless state, in a sinless perfect world were not continually doing nothing else but praying and singing praises and having devotions. No, from the very moment of man's creation, sinless man, sinless woman in a sinless world were given work to do. Work that would require that they use all of their God given faculties and abilities and this work was one aspect of the bliss and the joy and the happiness of life in an unfallen world. It's one of the purposes for which God created man. But then notice, secondly, that Adam was also given a specific task with reference to the Garden of Eden. Verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, we read, "...and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden." eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. You look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. So after God created Adam, he placed him in the garden. And even before the fall, though the ground was not yet cursed and there were no thorns and thistles, still the garden needed to be dressed and it needed to be guarded. There was room for the improvement of cultivation and the art of gardening. That's what Adam was. That was one of his, his jobs. He was a gardener. Now, he was more than that. He was also There was also a priestly function here, for the garden was a temple, as it were, to be extended over the earth. But it was the place where God would meet with Adam and Eve. But the point is, Adam was not placed in the Garden of Eden to just sit, you know, and eat grapes and, you know, and kind of lay around in the garden and enjoy the good weather. That's, he wasn't put in the garden just to do that. He was given work to do. And then later, God made the wellman to be his helper in the work, a work that would then also involve the bearing and the raising of children and providing for those children. All right, then. so what are, what are some of the practical implications then of what, of what we've seen just far, uh, thus far? Well, first of all, here we learn that God did not create man to be idle, but to work and to be productive. Now, I think sometimes Christians get confused about this. And we think, you know, that work is part of the curse. That because of the curse that fell upon man, now we all have to work. But uh, if it weren't for sin and the curse, we wouldn't have to work. Well, no, that's not what, that's not what we see in Scripture. Now, the curse does affect our work. We're going to talk about that later. But God created us from the very beginning with minds and bodies to work with, and he has given us the earth as our dwelling place to work on. He has created us in his image to reflect his glory. That is, we are created in the image of that one who worked for six days, creating the earth, and rested on the seventh. He did that as a model for us, as an example for his creatures, the God who continues to work. So that Jesus could say in John 5, 17, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. As many of you know, the common attitude in our day is that man was made for leisure and entertainment and recreation, not for work. Now, it's not that uh, entertainment and recreation are bad. They have their important place. I, we could do a series of messages on a biblical doctrine of, of rest and even a biblical doctrine of rec- recreation. They, ha- they have their place in, in our lives. But according to the Bible, the ideal life, the happy life, the fulfilled life, life lived as, as it was intended to be from the beginning, is not a life of nothing but leisure and recreation. But that's precisely the mentality that we see so often in our society. The man who is admired is the guy who's worked hard, he's, he's put away money, he's able to retire when he's 50 years old, uh, move to South Florida, <coughs> you know, live on the intercoastal uh, waterway or on the beach and spend all of his time walking on the sand, picking up and collecting seashells or, or going on boat trips or maybe traveling around the world to see the world and spend the last 30 years of his life just recreating or maybe moving to the mountains in north carolina or eastern tennessee and enjoying the smoky mountains and you know just getting up in the morning and drinking coffee and then maybe you know looking at the news and then you know going on the walks and and just kind of taking it easy for the ne- next 25 years of his life and just having a good time that's the guy that that's really made it in life that's the american dream that's the man Who's, who's accomplished uh, the end goal. You know, it's kind of like I always, it's, it's like a substitute for heaven, right? That's what some people are living for. That's, that's their goal in life, to get to that point where they can just kind of sit around and do nothing or do very little of any, anything that's really productive in life. It's the mentality that man's highest attainment is a life of idleness dominated by entertainment and recreation and leisure. Now, again, I'm not saying... Okay, I'm not saying that entertainment and and leisure or recreation, relaxation are sinful. They have their place. As Spurgeon put it, the bow cannot always be strung or it will eventually crack. Also, I'm not saying that there's no place for retirement. As we get older, it's often necessary to slow down, to lay aside our normal full-time work. It's not wrong to move to Florida. It's not wrong to move to the mountains or to wherever. But what is never right what is never right is to pursue a life of nothing but idleness and recreation that is not seeking in some way to be productive and useful. Rather than the ideal life, that kind of life is degrading to true manhood and womanhood as God created and intended, intended it to be. God did not create man to be idle but to work and to be productive. And then a second lesson we learn from this is that a holy life, a holy life is not to be defined merely in terms of engaging in special acts of worship. Now, I've been pointing this out all along. Now, I trust we all agree that Adam, before the fall, was holy. He was a sinless, holy man. And how was this holiness lived out? Well, there are a number of ways, but it was not merely by devoting himself to prayer and Bible study. One of the ways this holy life was to be expressed and lived out was by fulfilling his vocation of subduing the earth and taking care of the garden for God's glory, and doing that was holy work that was pleasing to God. Now, again, that doesn't mean that special acts of worship, whether it be personal, private worship, or public worship, are not important. No, if you know your Bible at all, you know that they are important. They're very important. But being diligent and faithful in your work is also important, very important. In fact, there are a few things that bring more reproach upon the name of Christ than a Christian who is very active in church, very devoted to prayer and Bible study and so on, and perhaps full of religious talk, but who at the same time is slack and lazy on the job. Remember, my dear friends, my dear brothers and sisters, a holy life is not to be defined merely in terms of passing out tracts, at the beach, or attending Bible studies, special acts of religious worship. A large part of living a holy, God-honoring life is to be faithful and diligent in your work, whether it be in the home, in the factory, in the office, or wherever God has placed you. So we've seen that productive labor is one of the purposes for which man was created. But now I want us to consider, secondly, the effects of the fall on the original labor mandate, the effects of the fall. What effect did the entrance of sin have when it comes to work? Well, let me make several observations. First of all, before we go any further, let's be clear that the fall did not cancel out the ordinance of labor, all right? After the fall, man is still to work. Adam still worked after the fall. Though, as we'll see in a moment, work became more difficult, and the duty of labor continued after Adam left the scene. For example, the, uh, the duty of work is assumed in the Ten Commandments. Just for one example, the fourth commandment, the command of the Sabbath. What does it say? Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath unto the Lord our God. The very idea of having a day of rest assumes days of work, Right? The two go together. So we see it in the Ten Commandments, the the assumption that man is to labor, he is to work, as well as to rest at the appropriate times. Likewise, we see an emphasis upon honest and hard work in the book of Proverbs. We have all those warnings about the lazy man, the sluggard who refuses to work. Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. He's commanding that. He's saying those who are diligent, they're the ones who are going to end up being the supervisors and the bosses and the ones who rule ordinarily. Now, there are exceptions, but ordinarily. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 13, 4, The soul of the lazy man desires... I mean, he desires a lot of stuff. Man, he'd love to have this. He would love to have that. He'd love to be able to do this and to serve the church in this way or that way or to give to that or to have this for his family. And so the the soul of the lazy man desires, he's full of desires, but has nothing. Why does he have nothing? Because he's lazy. He's lazy. Proverbs 20, verse 4, the lazy man will not plow because of the winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. I can't go out today, it's too cold, man. I'm going to stay home and play video games today. The lazy man will not plow. He has excuses. Always has excuses, right? He Has some excuse for not doing his work. He will not plow because of winter. What's the result? He will beg during harvest and have nothing. Proverbs 22:13. The lazy man says, "Now here's a real whopper of an excuse. There's a lion outside." I shall be slain in the street. That's his excuse. So I can't go to work today. Proverbs twenty six fourteen, as the as a door turns on its hinges, hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. We have statements like these Proverbs 14 23 In all labor there is profit. But idle chatter leads only to poverty. Proverbs twenty-eight, nineteen: he who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. And then when we come to the New Testament, we find that the Lord Jesus himself labored as a carpenter before he began his work, his, his work of his earthly ministry. Now, let's think about, just think about that for a moment, okay? Most of you will remember that it's at around age 30 that the Lord Jesus was publicly presented as the Messiah in this, at his baptism. It was on that occasion the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and the Father spoke from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, right? God was pleased with his Son. Of course, his, his earthly ministry hadn't started yet. It's just now starting. He was pleased with him then. He was pleased with the life that he had lived upon this earth leading up to that time in which his public ministry began. But now the question is, what was Jesus doing during all of those years before he began his public ministry? We, we're not given a whole lot of information about the first 30 years of his life, but this much we know, Okay? In Luke 2.41, we're told of an incident that happened when Jesus was 12 years old. Do you remember that? He and his parents had gone to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When his parents were returning, Jesus came up missing, and when they went back to Jerusalem to look for him, they found him in the temple in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Well, probably this is something that was a pattern. Throughout the years, he, his family would go to Jerusalem for the Passover. So during those years, he was, he was going to these feasts with his parents whenever there would be the, the, the yearly feasts. Luke 2.41 tells us that his parents went to Jerusalem every year at that time. So we know that much about his early years. Along with that, it's, it's, it's strongly implied in Luke 4.16 that every Sabbath... Except when he was at the at the feast in Jerusalem, Jesus attended the local synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. For we read in Luke four sixteen, he came to Nazareth where he had brought up where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So between age twelve and age thirty he's going to the appointed feast in Jerusalem with his family when those happened. And every Sabbath day, he attended the local synagogue where there was the public reading and exposition of the Scriptures. But what was he doing with the rest of his time during those years? Does the Bible tell us? Yeah, it does. Listen as I read to you now from Mark 6, 1 to 3. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So what's he been doing then those years from his youth to age 30? Well, our Lord had been giving giving himself to the labors of a carpenter. Indeed, he, he was so fully identified among those who knew him with the labors of the carpenter shop, and he had so fully acquired the skills of that trade and employed himself in that trade that this became an occasion of offense and stumbling to the people in his hometown. I mean, when they heard this amazing wisdom coming from his lips, and they heard all of these reports of all the great signs and wonders that accompanied his ministry, they couldn't figure it out. They said, in effect, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Isn't this the carpenter? That's how we've always known him, the carpenter. I mean, this is the guy that we used to see down there at the carpenter shop sweating with sawdust all over his forearms and sawdust in his beard. For years, he's the guy we used to take our tables to uh, and our chairs to get them repaired and to get them fixed. Isn't this the guy, isn't this the carpenter laboring down there in the carpenter shop? That's how they knew him. That's how they thought of him. So then when the voice of the Father was heard speaking from heaven at the outset of his public ministry, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. With what about Jesus was the father well pleased? Not at that point with his miracles because he hadn't performed any miracles yet. Not with his preaching for there's no record or indication that he had done any preaching or teaching yet. No, at this point in his life, it was none of these things. When the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, that included his faithfulness to go to the synagogue every Sabbath, to sit under the ministry of the Word, to study the Scriptures. It included those trips to the feasts in Jerusalem in obedience to the Levitical laws, where unlike most of the Jews of that day, we know that Jesus was, would not have been content with a mere external form, but he gave himself, heart, his life and heart and soul to the worship of his Father. But besides all that, the bulk of his father's pleasure, the father's pleasure in his son was no doubt focused on the bulk of what his son was and what his son was doing during this period of his life. Namely, what he was and what he did laboring in a carpenter shop day after day, month after month, year after year for 18 years. Now when we speak of the gospel and we talk about justification by faith and how that by being united to Christ by faith, his perfect righteousness is credited to our account. What does that perfect righteousness consist of? Well I can tell you that the bulk of it consists of what he did throughout the bulk of his life. Which included his diligent faithful labors as a carpenter in his father's carpenter shop and how this underscores my dear friends the dignity of hard work the dignity and the sanctity of any form of legitimate lawful work and it also reminds us again that responsible productive labor is christ-like it's part of what it means to live a holy life So the fall did not cancel out the ordinance of labor. We see it in the Ten Commandments. We see it in the Proverbs. We see it in the example of Jesus. And then, of course, this is a theme that we find throughout the New Testament epistles. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Is it, is it right for me to work with a view that, that, that I and my fam, me and my family will not lack anything that we need? That's exactly the motive he puts before us. He says what we're to do, to work, so that we'll lack nothing, so that me, my family are provided for the things that they need. But then he goes further than that in Ephesians 4.28 Let him who stole still no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. So we're to work, and we're to work hard with the view that we might be on the giving side of the equation instead of always on the receiving side of the equation, you see. I mean, sometimes because of providence and, and unexpected things that happen in our lives, or sickness, or diseases, or uh, many things that can come. We find ourselves on the receiving end, don't we? And, And benevolence and doing good to others implies that there will always be those who are in need. But Paul is telling us that you ought to work, and you ought to work hard, so that you're not always the guy who's on the receiving side. But you're on the giving side. So that tells us we're not only to work with a view and a motivation that we might have enough to provide for the needs of our own family, but that we might have more than just the needs of our own family so that we have an abundance to be able to give to the work of the gospel and to the needs of others, you see. That's the mindset that we are to have as God's people when it comes to our work. And there are many other passages. Time won't allow me to quote them all. But when the question is asked... What were the effects of the fall upon the original labor mandate? The first thing we need to be clear on is that it did not cancel it out. The ordinance of labor continues in force. But then secondly, though it continues in force, the fall has introduced various factors that make work more difficult. Now look over at Genesis 3:17 to 19. This is after the fall, and God pronounces the curse upon the earth. He says in verse 17, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken; for dust you are, into dust you shall return. Now notice again: God did not change the original commandment to work, to replenish the earth, and to subdue it. Adam is still to work, but now there are these new factors that have entered in that were not there before the fall. In verse 17, God said, "Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, cursed is the ground for your second toil; you shall eat of." Now that word translated toil is a word that carries with it the idea of pain, hardship. It can be translated painful toil. The old King James has sorrow. In sorrow or painful toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Then he goes on to speak of thorns and thistles and the difficulties man would encounter in his labors. Now, before the fall, obedience to the command to subdue the earth and to cultivate the garden and to keep it, would have been pure delight. There was nothing of pain and sorrow, even in the most intense labor, fulfilling the mandate God had given. There was none of the weariness in the work or the indisposition of the heart to the work that produces sorrow and pain and a longing for release from the task. Labor was pure delight. That's what Adam would have, con- would have had, would have continued to have. That's what the entire race would have known had sin never entered in. But now... Though the original mandate to labor is still in place, obedience to this command is mingled with pain and difficulties that are rooted in the cursing of the earth. And also, in the indisposition of man's heart produced by sin. And what can we learn from this? Well, first of all, this tells us that the difficulties we encounter in our work should be a humbling reminder to us of our fallen state, in the fallen state of the world around us. Notice that those difficulties that have entered in are basically three, three categories. One is bodily, one is inward, and one is outward. When it comes to our bodies, there's the simple matter of weariness and bodily weakness. Because of the effects of the curse, our bodies are subject to limitations and pains that Adam's was not, which only increase with the passing of years you may love your work you may be diligent and devoted to it and wish you could be more productive than you are and keep doing it at the same level of efficiency for unlimited years but we can't weariness comes in and we wear down and we need rest the years roll by we're not as strong as we once were our minds are not as quick as they once were and all of this is an effect of the curse it's not sinful that we have those weaknesses but it's because of the curse that sin has brought upon mankind. It affects our bodies. Then there are inward difficulties. Inward, The difficulties of an unwillingness to work or an indisposition to work. And, and in this case, this is sinful. It's the result of indwelling sin. By unwillingness, I'm referring more to the refusal to work. By indisposition, I'm referring to working, but my heart's not really in it kind of grudgingly doing it. And both an unwillingness to labor and the indisposition to labor are a revelation and reminder of our sinful state. Now, before the fall, the command to labor still came to Adam as a real bona fide command. There was no option. It came to him as a divine mandate. But in Adam's sinless state, heart obedience to God's commandment and inward delight of soul were perfectly joined together. Adam loved to obey. And it was nothing but a joy to work. When Adam got up in the morning, as it were, and asked himself, what am I supposed to do today? He wasn't simply left to follow subjective feelings and impulses. He had been given a command to obey and work to do. But Adam's obedience was not a grudging obedience. He jumped out of bed, as it were. I'm not saying literally did, but you know what? He jumped out of bed as a word and he said, Praise God, what what a joy to go to work today. In other words, God's commandment and inward delight were perfectly joined together. But you see, the entrance of sin into the human heart has changed that. That's why in some cases there's an absolute unwillingness to obey the command to work, children. You ever aware of that? In many other cases, there's an indisposition and only a grudging obedience. Part of the problem is sin in the human heart. Laziness is sin. It is an expression of indwelling sin, my dear friends. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, 7, that the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And the law of God includes any revelation of the will of God for men and women made in Scripture. And this is one part of the law of God that the carnal mind hates. And if you're here this morning, you've never been joined to Christ by faith, you've never been born again, you may feel that you don't need Christ. I don't need a new heart. You may feel that you're not a sinner or that at least your sins are few and far between. But my friend, is it not true with some of you that you're lazy? You don't want to work. You don't like to work. You have indisposition in your heart toward work. And often when you do work, work perhaps your parents give you to do around the house, you do it half-heartedly. You do it carelessly. You buck up against it. You don't want to work. You don't want to do it. And some of us who are adults, perhaps the same way when it comes to honest, hard labor and work. Well, you know what that is? That's sin. And that's why you need a Savior. That's why you need forgiveness. That's why you need a new birth. That's what the Bible means when it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is one proof of it. And for those of us who are Christians, even in our case, though we are in Christ and God has forgiven us of all of our sins and he's changed us and he's still sanctifying us, still there are the remains of sinful corruptions that war within us and every day when you find within you this indisposition to give yourself to the necessary labors and responsibilities of that day, remember the source of that, is the remainders of indwelling sin. And by God's grace, we have to fight against it just as we would in any other stirrings of sin within our hearts. It should humble us and it should drive us to continually seek grace from the Lord Jesus to overcome and to mortify that indisposition and to give ourselves to our work with joy and gladness. Now, that's not to say that it's a sin to be tired, to need a break, or that we are to work and do nothing but work every minute of every day, of every week, of every year. No, again, rest and recreation have a very important place in the, in the cycle of our lives. And there is the weariness that comes from living in these frail bodies, subject weakness and decay but we must resist and fight the tendency to be lazy and the tendency to neglect the work god in his providence has called us to in his proper time and manner and it doesn't matter what kind of work it is listen you can flip burgers in mcdonald's for the glory of god and and strive to be the best burger flipper mcdonald's ever had Because you're doing it unto the Lord. And it's as you work like that, you know what happens? People begin to notice it, especially in this culture that we live in. Some of you that are out there in the workplace, you know what it's like to find a person who actually comes to work with a joy and a zeal for their work, who really works hard, who can really be counted on to do what they're supposed to do. That's a rare thing to find. And Christians, this is one way we can tremendously affect the culture that we live in. It's by being the kind of people that can be counted on at work. And people see the difference in our lives. And we can say, you know why it's that way? It's because I love Jesus and he saved me and I'm seeking to do it unto the Lord, you see. There are outward difficulties as well. Cursed is the ground, he says. The earth itself, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And I agree with Calvin that that's just like, it's it's just a summary example that represents all of the kinds of difficulties we encounter in this present life that bring disappointment and frustration in our labors, even when we're seeking to fulfill our responsibilities. And by the grace of God, we're doing so with some measure of a right heart attitude. Even when that's the case, we still experience disappointment in our labors, such as Adam would have never known before the fall because of the curse his sin is brought upon the earth that has resulted in a measure of disorderliness and corruption and in the world its environment even at its best and God says that that will be the case until our bodies return to the dust unless Christ returns in our lifetime and therefore when we experience those frustrations and those difficulties when we've worked hard and and everything didn't turn out right. Something happened in the market or, you know, it, you planted your garden. This happened to me many times. I finally just gave, almost gave up on planting gardens. You planted your garden and the raccoons ate all your corn or the deer got in and nipped off all of your green beans before they actually produced. And that's just, I just use that as an illustration of all kinds of frustrations and difficulties we find in our work, right, because of this sin-cursed world that we live in. But when that happens, it's a reminder Let it be a reminder. Let it humble us and remind us of the evil of sin and our own fallen condition, the fallen state of the sin-cursed world in which we live. But not only should these things humble us, but one other thing with this, I'm I'm closing, okay? They should also fill us with earnest longings for the consummation of our redemption at the second coming of Christ. Why? Why? because when Christ returns all of the effects of the curse will be removed there will be no more weakness no more weariness there'll be no more remaining sin in your heart if you're a Christian and the earth will be renewed and renovated and with sinless hearts and in a perfect environment what will we do play harps floating on clouds no we will work unhindered, in the service of our Lord and King. As we read in Revelation 22, 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And what does he say that we'll be doing? It says, and his servants shall serve him. Not sit upon clouds playing harps, but they shall serve him. We will each work in our own respective fields of service assigned to us by Christ with sinless hearts in a perfect world, and universe. Children, let me just remind you, the preacher's gone on kind of long this morning, but I just want to remind you, the final state will not be an unending worship service in which the preacher will never shut up, okay? (laughs) In which you just have to sit there quiet for hours, and all we do is sing hymns. That's not what the final, now special acts of worship will certainly be one of the employments of the world to come, one of the most delightful aspects of it we will we will sing praises together to the lord and we will worship him but we will also work with sinless hearts and be productive ruling and reigning with christ serving our king in a perfect and sinless universe as man was created to do from the beginning this is our great hope that we have in jesus christ and so remember that In all the difficulties of your work, there's a day coming when it won't be that way anymore. And if you're not a Christian, you ought to long for that. I hope that makes you jealous to be a Christian. And you can be a Christian. Christ is able and willing to save all who in the consciousness of their lost condition come to him for mercy, cast themselves upon him, and believe upon him and receive him as their Lord and Savior. May God grant that you'll do that even this day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wisdom it gives. Help us to apply it to our lives. And help us as a church and as Christians, Lord, to be an example to the world around us. Working as unto the Lord. Counting our work as a sacred thing. We pray you'd forgive us where we've failed to view it that way, where we've complained, when we've been lazy, when we've been careless. Father, we wish we could say that that has never been true of us. Lord, you know that would be a lie. Forgive us. Help us to honor you in this area of our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.